I was driving home from the river on Thursday, and I met with an old friend I have not run into in a long time. I uh, have started fishing the big river here because uh, the whole world is on fire. Not the whole world, but my whole sacred mountain space that I've spent so much of my time in is all on fire. My love, my life, and my lady is on fire. To quote that wonderful song, Brandy, you know that one? All the sailors say, Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. But my love, my life, and my lady is the sea. Doo-doo. Doo-doo. You remember that? I know you're laughing at me right now, but that's my jam. Kind of implausible, though. I don't, I don't think that, you know, Brandy's just waiting around to hook up with one of these sailors. I find that implausible. But anyway, I've been heading up uh, up to the Big River and staying in the valley, and uh, and so far the smoke has stayed mostly out of the valley. It's been worse than the rest of the country. I had a, talked to a buddy in Boston the other day. He says, uh, why don't you take back your smoke? I thought, man, I wish I could because that smoke is erasing so many of my memories of my life. Anyway, I was I was driving home. I was listening to conservative talk radio, which I do occasionally. I wanted to see what they're saying about the vaccine, frankly. Cuz I don't know, man. I as I've as I as I've pointed out, if it's mind control or microchipping or any of the things I've heard so far, then, you know, bring it on. Anyway, I could only take so much of that, and uh, I was flipping through the stations, and I came across some weird mountain station that doesn't come in quite down here in the valley where I am, uh, but did an hour north, and there was a sort of older, genteel-sounding man giving what was clearly a lecture, you know, a recorded lecture. I couldn't really... I couldn't really tell what was going on. There would be a DJ who would punch in intermittently and say some crazy stuff. But anyway, uh, the topic that he came around to, I mean, he was talking about different things. He was talking about ego, I guess. But um, he came around to talking about Eugene Hergel's book, Zen and the Art of Archery, that uh, was transla translated in a... Uh, published in English in 1953. And it was uh, it was credited with introducing uh, the West and since it came out in the in the early 50s, the beat generation among others uh, to some of the concepts of, uh, of Zen Buddhism, which was very popular in that crowd. And it was a, a transformative book for me. I, I, I know that it's a, one of the sub-themes of the podcast to talk about books that were transformative to me and my experience with them, and, and this one truly is one of them. What's uh, interesting about it to me is that I had totally forgotten this book, and I don't think I've mentioned it in conversation or given it a passing thought in 
I don't know, 40 years, probably not 40 years, I'm not that old, but 30-something years probably, I met this book um, through another book. You know, being a, a certain kind of a teenager, being the kind of a teenager that grows up to be a <laughs> to be an English professor. I was very attracted to J.D. Salinger's books as a child, you know, and I, I read, obviously, Catcher in the Rye. And there were some allusions to this book in Catcher in the Rye, but in, in specifically in Seymour, an introduction, Seymour uh, sort of uh, gives his theory on uh, Zen and the Art of Archery or his, his application of it to a game of marbles. He tells his brother, buddy, he says... Uh, could you try not aiming so much? If you hit him when you aim, it'll just be luck. You'll be glad you hit his marble. Iris marble, won't you? Won't you be glad? And if you're glad when you hit somebody's marble, then you sort of secretly didn't expect too much to do it. So there'd have, so there'd have to be some luck in it. There'd have to be slightly, quite a lot of luck. So, yeah, um, he, he explains to him that he'd have a better chance of hitting the marble if he didn't aim for it. And this was the kind of paradox that appealed to me at the time, I guess. And I came to understand that that philosophy comes from Zen and the Art of Archery. So I tried to track down the book. I've described my relationship with tracking down books before, you know, of course, you can get a PDF of this uh, book on the internet right now and you could read it and you could read a summary of it. But, you know, when I was younger, of course, I had to just remember to look whenever I was in a library for the off chance that it might be a well-stocked library and they might have that book. And I was unable to come by it till I was about 18, I guess. So I searched for it for a few years and I finally got my hands on that sucker. So, uh, I was primed to read it by the time I was able to, to actually find it. Every time I'd ask somebody about it, they'd say, do you mean Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? No, different book. It's a fine book, too. I've got nothing against it, but it has not really very much to do with this, I guess. So anyway, I'm driving home, looking at the smoke rolling down the edge of the foothills, hoping... Uh, for it to, uh, to not be the last day of summer. You know, last year on August 19th, the smoke rolled into the valley and it stayed until November, which is the end of things. It was dangerous to breathe. Smoke was coming in under the door. It was inescapable. So uh, smoke is kind of triggering for us around here, you know, and, and we recognize that since everything is on fire all the time in the summertime, that uh, uh, one day this, the wind could shift and it could just be it for us. But I'm driving home, I'm listening to the lecture, and I don't know who the lecturer was, by the way, I never found out, but but he read this passage, which is, is the kind of classic passage uh, from Zen and the Art of Archery. The archer ceases to be conscious of himself as the one who is engaged in hitting the bullseye, which confronts him. This state of unconsciousness is realized only when, completely empty and rid of the self, he becomes one with the perfecting of his technical skill, though there is something of quite different order which cannot be attained 
by any progressive study in the art. The, the lecture about ego came around to the point that uh, people can see into the future or we can see the future and, and, and uh, the Zen and the Art of the Archery is being used to illustrate um, the point. And the idea is that if we, that our ego is an illusion and that our thoughts and actions are, are illusions and we're not actually uh, separated from, you know, actions and events are not separated from each other. They're joined together in one thing. So um, if you are going to shoot an arrow and you want to think to shoot the arrow, you want to think to draw the string, to think to... Um, release the bow, to think to watch the arrow toward the target, that you're separating yourself from those actions and you're basically like just counting on luck because your, your, um, your, I don't know what, <laughs> putting intermediary steps in between that, that thwart the outcome. You can just visualize the arrow and the target, it will uh, manifest there because you're actually seeing it in the future. That was the, the thrust of the argument. I don't, I don't know. I, I, in a way, these kind of uh, paradoxes don't matter to me that much anymore. But the idea of aiming without aiming and just willing something is something that I, I really tried to practice in the book. And it had uh, its most practical application in fly casting, where I don't think about what I'm doing. I just try to visualize the outcome, which includes both visualizing um, the fly going to where the fish is, uh, and maybe more directly, visualizing the fish on the line. I don't even know if I think about landing the fly sometimes. The other paradox though, that the book recognizes is that you can't, just, you can't just do this suddenly. You have to go through this long struggle and practice um, before you realize that you can't get, that, uh, get there that way. And then you have to give up, admit your failure, and then just uh, merge with the outcome, I guess. So I guess what I'm saying is I lived this book for a while and then totally forgot it, which is the point. That's, I guess, what you were supposed to do. Take the lesson from it and forget the source, and the source no longer matters. Well, that's cool. Except for that, of course, The book came back to me and I had to think about it. I had to go home and like look it up. I'm like, I don't even, I, I didn't remember the author's name. I didn't remember who it was. You know, I remembered its influence on the beat generation and I have some real problems with the way the beats use their uh, supposed spirituality in the most selfish kinds of ways. And so I had to, to revisit the book a little bit. And I had to, uh, in the last few days, you know, look into Eugene and Harrigal. And, uh, you know, first I read an, uh, an article by a guy named Arthur Kostler, 
who uh, discussed the way that Zen could be and has been used to uh, justify the Nazi party. I have uh, read where Harajel, I think I pronounced his name right, Harajel, was a Nazi or a Nazi sympathizer. I'm not sure. He was he was uh, tried in the anti-Nazi uh, you know, trials and investigations following the war, and he was found to be more, you know, a friend of the Nazis and an actual Nazi, but he lost his university position as a result of it, and he, um, you know, he was able to retire, I guess, since he wasn't found to actually be a Nazi. And then uh, he died of lung cancer about 10 years later, and apparently his wife went through a pretty... Um, extended process of sort of sanitizing his reputation. And then, of course, there are other people who have pointed out that the book is highly fictionalized and, and, uh, and you know, the, um, the conversations with his master um, never happened and were mostly fabricated. So I don't know where this leaves me. This doesn't change the way I feel about fly casting. I don't feel that... Um, that my attempts to see the future when I'm standing in a river make me a Nazi. <laughs> but, you know, I got a pretty little patience for Nazis. You know, for instance, I've discussed in the podcast, uh, you know, my disdain for Ezra Pound and his fascism and uh, and uh, made the argument that uh, his fascism isn't very, uh, uh, you know, that is that his fascism is inextricably bound up with the, the language of the texts that he wrote, particularly in the uh, in that station in the Metro poem that I did some analysis of a while ago. On the podcast, so uh, I don't know what to do now. I mean, on the other hand, I don't know if I really loved the book or if I loved Solinger's, um, you know, description of trying to aim without aiming. Um, I don't know if the book gave me this philosophy and transformed my life, or if I just transformed my own life by finding a personalized application for some ideas that were in it, but I, I do somewhat find myself in a position that I think a lot of us have found ourselves in, in this life, and, and I would say probably uh, lately in light of some of the ways we've been reassessing past behavior. And, uh, you know, people will make the argument that you can't, you know, you can't always uh, assess past behavior by current standards, and I'm like, well, Okay, but uh, what about the standards that were in place at the time? I mean, it wasn't okay to be a Nazi you know, in 1954 when the book came out, or 53 when the book came out in English, was it? You know, the, uh, the Cleveland Indians have uh, decided to finally change their name and I mean, man, that conversation is almost as old as I am. Stanford University changed its name from the Indians 
to the cardinal or whatever in 1972 you know the american indian movement was uh was sort of in full swing and then the occupation of alcatraz um you know had just had just ended in june of 1971 and uh you know people were listening to what native people had to say at the time and uh stanford said hey i think it's time we got off this ride so i i would say we can at least judge that call starting in 1972. <laughs> i mean if we use the standard when was the first you know organization to get right on this sports team naming and and there may have been examples before this but we could at least say that it was in 1972 when Stanford removed the the Indian as their, you know, mascot. But you know, the issue with a book like this is a little bit more complicated, I think. I mean, you know, yeah, my question is always is it written in the text? Jack London was a horrible person, but is is his horribleness written in the text? You know, maybe it is and maybe it's not, but I think that's the question and then I guess the question is also what do you do in life what do you do with people in life like you have a mentor you have a friend you have a a relative you know and you go along and you learn later in life that that person was a bad person in various ways in ways that you you know can't tolerate in the ways that you think is you know that person may be the worst type of person what do you do with uh an experience with that person that was characterized by, you know, kindness to you. You know, in one of the earlier podcasts, I talked about the Foxfire books and, and, uh, you know, I'm really, really, uh, in love with the Foxfire books and the idea of, of them. But it turns out Elliot Wigington, the, the teacher who, um, uh, you know, facilitated the interviews that became the Foxfire magazine, later the Foxfire books, and, and started a, a, you know, an outdoor education program around it, uh, was convicted of child molestation uh, and convicted of one count of it, but it probably, you know, uh, was widespread and there's a lot of, of information, a lot of accusations about it. he was a bad person and in those in the interviews with people who had been his victims they're very it's very complicated because they really i i, I don't know what i'm i don't know what i'm saying i don't know where i'm going here but like it, it it's uh, it's interesting to me to come to this conclusion and like well this book was a really influential book to me and was probably very important to me but the person who wrote it was probably a bad person and there's probably some bad ideas in it but you know i i also have to be honest that i i think what I've done with those ideas is not bad at all. I mean, unless you're against catch and release fly fishing, which you might be, and I would respect that. But, but to me, I was able to take a lesson and um, filter it through my own values and not be contaminated by whatever ideas in there might be um, repellent to me and I don't know I, I'm not going to read the book again I don't know that I want to read the book again um, I think that uh, constructing the book in memory 
and applying it to my life and now is the important thing to do. And I guess why that matters to me right now is because uh, my forest is burning down and I'm not going to be able to go back to it. And it's only going to be a memory from now on. And what I do with that memory seems to be of critical importance to the rest of my life. Mm -hmm.